But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Let's pray. Lord, you are holy. We are unworthy to come before you. We thank you, God, that you saw fit to send your son to save us. We thank you. The Spirit awakens us to the truth of God's work. The sacrifice of the Son, the glory and honor of the Father. We thank you so much just for all of your many rich blessings toward us. Your continued kindness and mercy, your patience with us. We thank you that you draw us near to you. No matter what our circumstances and our brokenness, you are kind and loving, faithful. Pray, God, as we look at your word today, God, that you would open our eyes to see what is true, what is worth worship. It's worth a life that is sacrificed at the foot of your throne. And pray, God, that you would hide me behind the cross to proclaim the good news that Jesus Christ is risen. Jesus Christ is with us today. I ask, God, that you would govern this time, God, as only you can your spirit would lead us into all truth. In Christ's name, amen. May be seated. All right. Preaching the gospel last week is kind of one of those things where maybe going in you, you may have Felt, or you may be looking at those verses and say, yes, I've heard this before. How can we hear this again in a new way? And God never ceases to amaze us in that way. So it's fitting that we're going to look at it again today in a new way. And what we'll do is try to establish contrast in view of the gospel. In the verses we just read, verses 8 and 9, there's a contrast that will investigate two phrases, excellent and profitable, unprofitable and worthless. See in verse 8, excellent and profitable. The end of Verse 9, unprofitable and worthless. We begin with excellent and profitable, reflecting upon the wonders of the gospel, of course. The verse 8 starts with saying that this saying is trustworthy. The saying is trustworthy. What is the saying that is trustworthy? It's referring to the verses that we covered last week, verses 4 through seven, 
When the goodness and the loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy. We can place our entire trust in these words. They are everything. As Andrew preached last week, we find the fullness of our identity in the initiation of the Father, the accomplishment of the Son, and the rebirth by the Spirit. We cannot simply move on without letting this resonate. Maybe some of you this morning are, yeah, I get it. No, you don't. There's no getting the gospel. There's no containing the gospel. There's no capturing the gospel. Rather, we are captured by the gospel. We are apprehended by the gospel. It is in the gospel that we find our bounds, our hope. And as that resonates with us, we begin to build our trust in this saying, in this message, this good news for us. One translation summarizes verse 4 to say, The kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared. We have to remember again, in the gospel message, this trustworthiness that we're supposed to have, it, it hinges on a transcendent act of kindness. This is not just something nice God did for us. This is everything that he could do. This isn't just a measured sense of goodwill. This is the fullness of love poured out from heaven for us. There's nothing more he could have given. There's nothing more that he could have done. There's nothing more he could have promised. This is everything. In this message, we see Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of the living God, the fullness of the Godhead bodily, the firstborn of creation, offering himself up as a spotless sacrifice for our redemption, our justification, our salvation. This is all things. Everything that could have come from God for man is in this trustworthy saying. So that in him, we can trust that we have been redeemed. In him, we can trust that we have been justified. In him, we can trust that we have a Savior. The saying is trustworthy. God himself is the basis for this confidence. 
I'm not asking you to trust me. I'm not asking you to trust in a book with a language that we can understand. I'm not asking you to trust a good idea. I'm asking you to listen to the word of God himself. Look at the sacrifice of God himself and be renewed and transformed by the spirit of God himself. This is the basis for the trust that we should have. Verse 8 continues where Paul says that Titus is to insist these truths or to affirm them constantly, affirm this truth, this trustworthy saying constantly. So everything that we've learned, every, everything that we've walked through in this book, we're taking everything and we're pointing back to this moment here. We're pointing back to this trustworthy saying it all is finding its weight on this foundation. Anything that is taught further or, or surrounding this saying it can only be trustworthy on the basis of the gospel. And Titus is to insist and affirm these truths as an emphasis on where we place our confidence. The kindness of God, the saving work of God, the mercy of God are where we must start. And in the same way that Paul begins this letter with the gospel as his theological basis for his own identity and the identity of all believers... Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness is a summation of the gospel and the theological framework by which we will proceed through the entire book of Titus. He begins here and so should we. There's a similar framework when Paul lays out the identity basis in his letter to the Christians in Rome, where he spends 11 chapters talking about our depravity, Christ's atonement, the work of the Spirit, and more before telling them in Romans 12 to present their bodies as living sacrifice, as a living sacrifice in light of those mercies. We learn so much about the gospel and Jesus and, and, and living life in the spirit before he calls them to actually act upon those. He says, consider these mercies first. This is excellent and profitable. Now notice in verse 8 as it continues, we're, we're heading somewhere. He's not just saying reflect on the gospel and, and just think about that in your study, in your rocking chair, in a comfortable robe with a nice cup of java and, and then just everything else will fall into place. There's an assumption that bathing in these truths will be reflected in the outworking of the Christian. 
so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. It's a very intentional phrase. Careful to dedicate, devote yourself to good works. So here are the works again. The works. It's a... Depending on how you hear that, it it could be a very offensive word. But Paul's not letting up. This is an echo through the entire book of Titus where he's emphasizing or putting another emphasis on these works. And he seems pretty adamant, not just about the works themselves, but the evidences of grace. He's convinced that This new nature that we have produces a function of holiness. And it's seen in how we live in community with one another. And the watching world can observe the difference, the distinction of the Christian community. There's activity going on that's observable. There's there's evidences, there's proof of the joy that that we have living within us, this full joy that we're walking with, this expectation of of truth and promises fulfilled from this Christ that we preach and proclaim plays itself out in our lives. The entire epistle has offered us a picture of a healthy local church. We see that A healthy local church carries with it an identity that is the antithesis to idleness and isolation. Now, it's very interesting because we often see this anti-church concept at work where People find more confidence or comfort at times in their own isolation rather than in the community and the gathering of believers. Or people find this this application of coming to church as if church, the, the workings of the church or the people dedicated to service in the church should serve them and they don't have to do anything but just be bodily present. This book is giving us the complete opposite idea of that. The complete opposite. If the younger women are to be taught by the older women, then there has to be community. If there's instruction given for how Titus is supposed to present himself as a godly example to other young men, there has to be community. If there's a protection application from false teaching where those who are in have to come out, there has to be some understanding of the inner workings of the community. And if there are actions being commanded of people, there is no cause for idleness. There's no holding pattern here. There's an activity that's being given as an instruction on the basis of this trustworthy saying, the gospel. Now the placement of this this verse here 
verse 8 centers on Titus insisting the truths of the gospel to these, these church, this church development, to the people within the church development for the purposes of sound community. So it's not just a bunch of people coming together because we're people and we all believe the same thing, but he's communicating something about the health of this community. Now, it's interesting, when, when we keep the right things in the first place, the most healthy result is what we'll, we'll often see. So if we, we focus our attention on the works and we listen to something like this, like, we got to get better, we got to do this, we got to do that, your energy will be sapped, you will often be discouraged, you'll begin to run out of gas as it relates to religion, and church, and Christianity. But if we start with the gospel, if we reflect upon the goodness of Jesus, if we reflect on the majesty of the cross, if we spend time in, in prayer and we ask the Spirit to give us wisdom to understand what the Word of God teaches us and how to apply it towards one another, then we begin to spring up into a life that bears action. So that's what I love about the, this preaching of the gospel. And, and when Andrew can share a message and, and talk about the goodness of Jesus, we all have our own individual landing points and theological convictions and, and how we should apply certain things from Scripture, these ideas of our works and, and understanding what it means to be a mature Christian on fire for Jesus. We all have those opinions and perspectives. But when we all sit down and reflect on the shed blood of Jesus Christ, we are no more unified than we can ever be in thinking about his mercy, his love towards us. If I can look across the room and see a nodding head or a tear fall, then I know that I have gained a brother and a sister because we know that we all needed this. There's no separation. There's no, oh, that opinion's different. This message is everything. And those who acknowledge it find themselves in this, this forced group hug that we can't get out of. Interlocking fingers and grappling with ourselves, holding ourselves together, saying, this is the solid rock upon which I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. We know this is why we are here. And that's what I love about the preaching of the gospel. So if the emphasis and the fruit of which is literally community, and we acknowledge this unity is like nothing else, and we're drawn together by it, what do we do? What do we do after recognizing and acknowledging that, us all gathered here together? What do we do with this? When we remember the gospel, we pray, we serve, we disciple, we submit, we honor, we extend courtesy, etc. There are 
plenty of imperatives in this book. That all these things he's been addressing, that Paul has been addressing and teaching Titus, they hinge on this trustworthy saying. The language that he uses here in, in verse 8, to, to, that where he says that they should be careful to devote themselves. Careful to devote themselves. There's, it's careful or intent. or the, the Greek word here means thoughtful. So there's, there's an actual participation of the mind that, that actually thinks about, thinks through, and, and participates with thoughtfulness in these good works. They're not mindless activities where you're just, I'm doing this because I'm supposed to. There's a thoughtfulness. There's a care taken towards what you're doing. So you're thinking about and reflecting upon the gospel, and then you're thinking through and reflecting on the ways that you participate in community and serve. This is the type of flourishing witness that we ought to be in the world. And amongst one another, not doing just to do, but careful consideration. Church fellowship is not this mindless operation where we wake up on Sunday mornings and before we know it, it's 1015 and we've sat through a couple of songs in church. There's an intentionality, there's a careful consideration of what we're doing, why we're doing it, and flourishing in that. So often when we kind of present the entire case for what Scripture is saying here, then the practical questions come up, which are very valid questions. What should I do? This abstract concept of works, what should I do? Now, these thoughtful works that Paul is, is calling the church to or asking Titus to call the church in Crete, the churches in Crete to are not just these abstract things that you should just figure it out as you go. No, he's saying specific things in chapter 2 that they should do. He's saying specific things in chapter 1 that they should do. But us here in 2017, how do we, how do we process that? How do we think through that? I would say the first place to start is, is thoughtful and intentional prayer about what I should do. Asking the Lord, hey, I, I'm a part of community. This is, my, this is my fellowship. This is my church. This is a part of membership, covenant. God, what should I do? Because some things, or sometimes in churches, some people can feel about themselves a way that they have nothing to offer a church because their gift or their particular skill is not going to get a platform. That doesn't mean the church doesn't need you. There's thoughtfulness to praying and asking where you can serve and where you can fulfill a need. And that is what He's calling these people to do. So prayer first. Placing yourself in community informs your prayers about people in the church. Now, that's a huge assumption. Placing yourself in community can mean a lot of different things to different people. 
But if you think placing yourself in community on, on its baseline level just means what we did th- during that 2.5-minute handshaking session in the greeting period, I'm saying that there's a deeper level than that. That will inform your prayers. When you get to know people, when you, when you get to know the places where they may feel limited or the places where they may be very, very excitable, or you get to know the, the struggles that they're enduring, or you get to know the happy places that they have been in, forms your prayer in community. Discipleship. We talked about that weeks ago, and this idea of placing yourself in community helps you connect and seek growth. It's not an often explored phrase of, I need to grow in the word. Can you help me with that? It's not a often it's not a phrase you visit often in community or, or these cell groups that we create for one another where we intentionally place ourselves with it maybe peer-to-peer relationships or there's a mentorship kind of creation of this operation. But the specific focus is I want to grow in my study of Scripture. I want to grow in my fellowship with the Word of God. I want to grow in my worship before God by means of knowing more about God. Can you help me with that? And then there's the big, broad context, corporate gathering. So we're asking this question, what should I do? Start with prayer. Uh, Analyze what it means for you to seek discipleship or participate in discipleship. And then the big broad concept, which doesn't necessarily seem to require uh, a whole lot of people, is the, the corporate gathering, coming on Sunday in the morning to worship for an hour, an hour and a half. There's a ton of opportunity to serve On a Sunday morning. You don't even necessarily have to send an email to be placed on a list to to bear weight of a requirement where we need you here at this time, at this location, at this date. Every morning, we see one another. We embrace one another. We exchange pleasantries. But if we're starting with prayer then there's a thoughtfulness into the way that we engage one another. There's surface-level, high-level questions we can ask from one another just to keep moving, but then there's a moment where we dwell with a person. And in service, we're trying to find a place for God to use us in a specific way. We've got an opportunity for that every Sunday. You may not say hi to everybody on that Sunday. They might see you in the corner and say, they've been talking for a long time. Well, there may be something going on there. If you're in a rush to get out, or if somebody sees a person who is in a rush to get out, and they get chased down, 
That may be an opportunity to serve. Hey, where are you going? I had to talk to you now. You know, that's, that's, but that's an opportunity. It's real. Sometimes that person who's rushing out feels so anxious about being in a new place that, that being, noticed, being noticed is fearful to them. But at the same time, being noticed may be everything they need. So when you find them and then they come back, they may not be in such a hurry next time. Just some things to think about in working through this what should I do or this careful or being intent, thoughtful about good works, community. Now, I want to warn you that if you're not thinking through that or you're not processing that often, I want to be I want to tell you to be careful that that idleness doesn't set in. Because before long, that non-thoughtful or non-careful or lack of intentionality becomes to just define who you are and what you think of church, what you think about the local gathering and the assembly of believers. Like the... Mercy Me song says it's a slow fade. It's not something that just, I'm just this person. But you carefully observe how that warmth turns to coldness. And then you're distant where you were once present. Or you're apathetic where you were once, once hopeful. Be careful. Before you know it, you're, you, you may just become a church attender. And that's, that's a scary place to be. Don't just be a church attender. There's more joy. There's more worth. There's more vulnerability to explore and find answers when you actually abide in thoughtful community. Now, conversely, on the other side of things, don't be alarmed if a depth of reflection upon the gospel causes this urgent, what should I do type of response. If there's an excitement or enthusiasm be behind you thinking through the gospel and you, and you feel yourself bursting at the seams like, what should you do? That's great. Even though some people may look at you and say, you need to settle down. You may, you may look back at them and say, why are you so cool? Why are you so settled? What, what should we or what can we do? You should recognize that these opportunities to serve or do do not just necessarily fall into your lap where the right person will meet you at the right time and say you can do the exact thing that you've always been hoping to do. Often you'll be looking at a sacrifice. Behind every decision to be a member of a church should be a prayerful consideration of sacrifice. 
going to require something of you that, that you're, you're feeling the weight of your commitment. But you're not committing to man and you're not committing to just hard work in and of itself. You're reflecting on the gospel and you're participating in communion, the spirit, by praying and seeking the Lord, reading scripture. And then you stand up to say, Lord, use me, send me, help, help me understand where I can serve. Many are already working this follow-through out, working this entire process out and seeing that fruitfulness in their lives. I want to encourage you that there's more. If you don't know already, there is more to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ than rules, regulations, guilt, and harm. There's joy in finding these things, working them out. So Paul concludes verse 8 saying, those good works being established, trustworthy saying being established, these things are excellent and profitable for people. Concludes this section of addressing the health of the church, this verse, the section of the health of the church which begins at chapter 2. So if you read chapter 2 to here, you're reading a, an entirety of consideration. We begin saying, as for you, teach sound doctrine. Then you land at excellent and profitable. These things are excellent and profitable. And the contrast comes in addressing what is unprofitable and worthless. These foolish controversies, these genealogies or dissensions and quarrels about the law, specifically what he references here. And there is some summarization of the Judaizer problem that Paul deals with in chapter 1. There's these constant discussions and debates about matters that primarily had to do with Jewish tradition and the Mosaic law. And we talked about some of this weeks ago and what Paul is saying here in this word, avoid. He's saying avoid this. It's also translated to mean shun this, shun it. The, tr- the literal translation, the Greek word for this, this avoid is, is an act of literally turning your back on this type of activity and those who promote it. Now these foolish controversies, she first addresses, they have their, their roots in arguments, in debates around trivialities, things that are very trivial It's one thing to identify a false doctrine. It's one thing to identify a false doctrine or ideology for the purposes of expounding on the truth. So this is false. Let me show you what is true. That's very important and vital to do that. It's one thing to do that. 
It's another thing to entirely dwell upon the controversy of this false doctrine and never arrive at attempt to distinguish the truth versus a lie. So you're constantly talking about the scandalous nature of what is false and what's wrong, and you're not taking the time to actually unpack what is true and what helps us disregard what is false. The discussion surrounding the falseness just becomes a waste of time. And the discussion of the controversy is often just an excuse to gossip. Unprofitable and worthless. The mention of genealogies has to do with a fixation on these genealogies that we would see throughout Scripture. And they use them, or people are using them in a harmful way as just a means for imaginative interpretations, imposing these, these vain types of significances on certain people and families. So you're looking at these genealogies and saying, this is why our family is a big deal. This is why you should listen to me because I came from this kind of stock. Now, we as believers, we we value the genealogies in that they unveil the purposes of God and they reveal Christ to us. But what Paul addresses here is this common practice of exploring ancestry for man-centered purposes. A few things are worse than the use of time spent on empty speculation. Unprofitable and worthless. These dissensions and quarrels about the law were directly connected to the efforts of the Judaizers. When we explore this in in chapter 1, we identify the distinctions between the works of righteousness reflected, reflected by man's efforts and the truth of the gospel reflected by Christ's finished work on the cross. They're still troubling these individuals with these, these quarrels about now that you have believed and you're a part of our camp, you must also do this to really be a part of our camp. Whereas the gospel says that what Christ has done is sufficient. And our confidence is in that. But these camps in the Jew, amongst, the, amongst the Jewish leaders, they, they constantly fought over the right application of, of every jot and tittle of the law. These, these, these phrases and, and these disclaimers and all of the hidden language and, oh, you, you missed that one. So, you know, every, every kind of inch that you gain, you step five places back if another person could come up and accuse you and say, oh, you're not quite doing that right enough. So now you're nothing. Uh, I guess I'm the authority now. And then another person would rise up and say, say, oh, I saw you do that the other day. Nope, don't worry about it. You missed this part here. And then there's this constant arguing and bickering over foolish things according to this law that in and of itself cannot save. It's upset the faith of entire households on the basis of 
greed and dishonest influence. So not only are you arguing about this, but you're arguing about it because you want to have control over people and you, in some cases, just want their money. So if you win the argument, then you win their money and you win their respect. You're not trying to help them, but you're just trying to gain vain influence. Unprofitable and worthless. We're to compare the, worthy, the worthlessness of these things to the, abundant, the abundantly rich worth of the gospel. Truths captured in the trustworthy saying have a far greater implication on winning people to Christ than winning an argument. There's a building of this fleeting sense of self-confidence and putting on a good show when you find your attention focused on the unprofitable and worthless. Rather with the, the excellent and profitable, seeing that God reaches down to the depth of hopelessness of mankind and unearths a treasure of incomparable glories. And you recognize that only God can do this. And what we see in the gospel and the excellent and the profitable lends to kindness, to grace, and to mercy. It's applied towards us and extended towards others, while the unprofitable and worthless just leads to fruitless arguing, accomplishing nothing, and sinking further into our hopelessness. And our tendency can often be to dwell on the unprofitable and worthless, to feed controversy rather than rest in the gospel. I'm sure that many of us have been tempted in this way, considering the current season our church is walking through, where we can come together and acknowledge the truth of God's kindness, Christ's sacrifice, and the Spirit's renewal. Sometimes we don't stay there. And furthermore, we can find ourselves participating in unprofitable discussions and pursue this useless external picture of righteousness. Unprofitable and worthless. We don't hinge any concerns we have on reflecting upon the gospel. We just abide in the controversy. Unprofitable and worthless. There's this danger of the false teachers and false converts. Titus 1.16 says that they profess to know God but deny him by their works. So as much as we love grace, we know that it in grace exists a pursuit of good works a follow-through of the message that we proclaim and we treasure. Conversely, there are those who profess to rest in and treasure this grace, but they deny the Lord by their works. In the case of 
teaching a fundamentally false doctrine. And at times, by living as such to where you cannot detect the fact that they rest in the trustworthy saying of the gospel. We should take self-inventory and ask honestly what we see in our lives. Paul instructs Titus to stress, to, to insist on the best things, to stress that our hope and our joy remains in Christ. The imperative this week remains the same. Remember Jesus. Remember his faithfulness. Remember what he has done. It is enough. It is everything. We fellowship with the Spirit and participate through thoughtful good works. The literal meaning for the word excellent in this excellent and profitable, this, the literal word has multiple definitions. Good, excellent in its nature and characteristics, beautiful to look at, surpassing, useful, admirable, commendable, and more. In this word excellent, you find all these things. Titus is to insist on the truth of the gospel as a measure of these things. And we find that it is trustworthy. Finally, the encouragement that Paul gives to the church in Philippi seems fitting Philippians 4 and 8 reads, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. That sounds like the exact same command here to reflect on the trustworthy saying. Remember the gospel. Soak in the gospel. The works that spring forth are not works that you in, in of yourself decided to do or can find glory in doing, but Jesus stays, remains glorified. Let's hear Titus' words today as he continues to exhort us on what it looks like to be a sound, healthy church and watch God's glory burst forth in the aftermath. Let's pray. Lord, you alone are worthy. You alone are worthy of our trust. If nothing else, by what you have declared to be true, but that you also were gracious enough to act in such a way to display your worthiness, to demonstrate your kindness, to demonstrate your grace and your love towards us, so that we take your word as true and we also see that you have laid everything out there for us to see. We pray that we find our confidence in Christ. 
pray that we find our zeal in any activity that results in reflecting upon this perfect and complete sacrifice. Pray that we bring it before you and we trust you in this posture of service. Transform us, God, and renew us, awaken us to what your word teaches us, Lord God. Continue to show us mercy, God. Help us to see you more clearly. We thank you for your word. Place confidence only in Christ. Love you. In Christ's name, amen.